Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit. A podcast that takes a closer look at the IT industry, both the good and the bad. My name is Cameron Plato. And I'm Brian Long. And I'm Brian Link. On today's episode, we're going to do something we haven't done before. Or more specifically, I'm going to do something I haven't done before. And that's record a solo episode. Just me. Yeah, I'm scared too. So here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to spend a little time exploring a few of the big IT-specific trends that affected us all last year. I'll try to provide a little context around each and how I think they will or won't affect us this year and beyond. Second, I'm going to do something very stupid and talk about a few trends I expect to impact IT in 2022. Yes, I know, this is stupid because I will most certainly be wrong in a lot of ways. But hey, if meteorologists and sports analysts can get away with being wrong about predictions, so can I. Okay, let's get started. Before we jump in, I'd like to tease a few of the upcoming topics we're going to be talking about here on Cut the Shit. Uh, we got a number of guests that are going to be coming on, a uh, traditional format where um, we do some interviews or we kind of go back and forth on topics. Uh, and a couple of things we're going to be covering are things like the CFO-CIO relationship. We're going to have one of each together uh, and talk about that, which should be interesting. Um, we're going to do a black hat versus white hat, um, what that means in the hacking world, and kind of get into that a little bit. Uh, we want to do an episode on technology buyer profiles uh, and how to be a smart IT buyer. Um, we're going to have uh, an, an academic talk to us about sort of the relationship between trust uh, and technology and how technology is impacting trust in the workplace. And we're going to have uh, a special guest uh, come on and talk to us about how technology is impacting uh, the ability to deliver services to the deaf and hard of hearing, which I'm super excited about. That's going to be really interesting, um, a really interesting episode uh, the CEO of this company, she's very dynamic uh, and interesting. And this is something that, again, most of us probably don't know much about, but uh, it's a really terrific use of technology to deliver uh, needed services. Okay, on to the main event. Uh, let's talk a little bit about 2021. Uh, man, what a weird year. It started weird. Uh, and just when we thought things were maybe going to go back to sort of normal, it got weird again. Uh, COVID was once again the dominant Uber theme of 2021. No surprise there. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time talking about COVID because, I mean, God knows you can get as much of that or more <laughs> as you could possibly ever want uh, from mainstream media, not so mainstream media, kook sites, wherever you want to go. You can get anything you want. So um, this podcast won't spend really any time on that. Uh, the only thing we're going to talk about as it relates to COVID uh, really are sort of the primary, sort of a primary and secondary impact. I guess the primary would be sort of the pure technology aspect of MNRA technology uh, and, and vaccines uh, and how exciting that has been for us, I think, both in terms of its impact on, uh, on COVID in terms of the near term, in terms of helping people either avoid infection or uh, avoid hospitalization and severe disease. Um, and then secondarily, uh, MNRA technology and its possibilities that it may provide for us uh, in the future. Um, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a doctor. So I'm not going to spend uh, much time talking about it other than to say, I think it's something that all of us, regardless of whether we're uh, in the medical field or not, should probably spend a little time reading about and understanding how it works. Um, obviously, there are detractors. Um, there are critics uh, who are concerned about its long-term impacts. Maybe that's fair. I, I don't know. It, it, we don't know what the long-term impacts are going to be at this point. It's, it's pretty new. Um, and I think that's, that's both exciting and, and kind of on the, the new frontier of development. And uh, in terms of fighting disease, uh, these are the kinds of things that I think we should all hope for and really, I think, speak to the promise 
of technology in its ability to help improve our lives. If you think about, uh, just go back through the, the mental laundry list in your head of technology um, innovation, uh, the, the technology innovations that have changed our lives, um, all of them um, probably in the, at the outset uh, had detractors uh, and had had some concerns, and some of those concerns were real. Um, not to not to to you know to say that those detractors were completely wrong, but I think it's the nature of technology innovation that it has to be risky at the beginning and then get better over time. And I think the the speed at which we went from uh, the drawing board, if you will, for MNRA technology to um, to production uh, was was pretty incredible. Um, and, and again, uh, I think uh, my hat's off to the scientists who developed that, um, who commercialized it, um, and my hat's off to the, um, you know, to the pharma companies who developed the vaccines. Um, sure, could it have been done faster? I uh, don't think anybody could argue with that. Um, but it, you know, in terms of in terms of historical uh, in t- historical speed, it was as fast as it's ever been done, um, and the distribution is wider um, and and more. Uh, dispersed than I think most people expected. So from that standpoint, it, it, you, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it as one of the big stories and a big technology story for 2021. Um, I think the, maybe for, from, a, from an IT perspective, maybe it's the secondary impacts from COVID that are probably the most impactful um, as it relates to our industry or even sort of technology as it relates to, to sort of mainstream business as a whole. Um, and that's where, so, so thinking about sort of downstream, uh, downstream stories and issues that came from, um, from the COVID pandemic and then from, um, you know, from the efforts to, to combat that, whether that's vaccines or uh, public policy changes, particularly as it related to um, stimulus, you know, monetary policy changes, but also um, restrictions on access in terms of trying to make sure that people were socially distancing and all that kind of stuff. So those sort of secondary impacts, I think, are really where, um, you know, my focus would be as I think about when I look back to 2021 um, and, the, and the impact from COVID or sort of the secondary impacts. And those are really two primary ones. And that's the labor supply issues um, and then supply chain microchip issues, um, both of which um, are not 100 uh, percent directly related to to the COVID pandemic and efforts to 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 fight it. But certainly, um that had a had a big impact on it. Uh, the labor supply problems, um, you know, really interesting one there. Um, there are some fundamental trends that have been uh, operating in the um, in the in the sort of the labor world since the financial crisis of 07, 08, um, in the sense that labor participa- participation rates have been lower. Um, economists have been somewhat um, Confused by that, uh, if you will, uh, don't don't exactly know the answer, and, and frankly, neither does anybody else. Uh, it's a lot of different people We're talking millions of people, so it's not necessarily easy to to figure out. These are classic, um, you know, multi you know problems with multiple facets, uh, not not one simple uh, simple answer, and therefore one simple prescription to fix it. But there's no question that in the spring of 2020, uh, when the world shut down and literally. I can't remember the number. Uh, I, I have to look in the articles. I want to say it's in the, the the 20 20 30 million jobs were lost in the kind of the second quarter of 2020, um, and then we immediately had a snapback on the backside of that, where jobs began to come back quite rapidly, um, much faster actually than people thought. And so when we hit 2021, um, and then vaccines became available in the spring, 
uh, it really felt like, wow, um, this is going to be a real snapback recovery and uh, the job market is going to be uh, robust and recover pretty much completely. And, and in a lot of ways, part of that story is true. Um, if you look at, if you look at uh, employer demand for workers, it is pretty much equal to where it was prior to, um, prior to the pandemic uh, starting. Uh, I think it's it's not at 100%, but it's close. It's like 99% and change in terms of the demand and the, the number of jobs that um, that are looking to be filled. Now, those aren't all the same jobs, but the, but the the gross number is there. The difference is the number of, of folks who are actually looking for jobs, um, and therefore the gap between um, what's available um, in, in terms of employees and what employers are looking for has grown significantly. So we have this huge gap um, in the in the labor force and and IT jobs are in many ways they're not the tip of the spear I think maybe healthcare jobs are but they're certainly <clears throat> they're one of the biggest problem areas for uh, for employers looking to hire and a lot of that is is replacement of workers but a lot of it is growth too I mean when you think about the expansion of cloud services uh, the expansion of things like machine learning um, that are required you know machine learning may sound like it's robots or uh, you know operating on its own without uh, without labor but it's really not you've got to have developers and you've got to have technical folks to help uh, set those programs up uh, care and feed them make sure they're working properly and continue to uh, improve them um, because those are algorithms and modules that are that that are not stagnant um, and so the desire or the need for uh, employees to be able to to handle this kind of technical work just continues to grow, and and truthfully, the 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 supply is not there. Um, some of this is related to you know technologies maybe not as impacted by some of the retirements and some of those uh, folks stepping out of the workforce as other sectors, but it's certainly there. And the other big story as it relates to technology is limits on immigration, which um, you know obviously it was widely known that during the Trump administration uh, there were you know there were more aggressive limits on immigration. Um, and while the Biden administration has talked some about changing those, frankly, that hasn't changed much um, in terms of the restrictions, some, but not a ton. And, you know, with in the pandemic era, there hasn't been as much movement of people for lots of different reasons. Um, and the technology sector is particularly dependent uh, on immigrant labor, um, high, you know, high skill labor for uh, for a number of its a number of its jobs. So that's that hasn't happened. That's not happening like it used to either. So these things are all kind of coming together um, in, in kind of a perfect storm that I think, you know, when you look at 2021 and then going into 2022, obviously this is not a, this doesn't make me a prognosticator to say these problems are not going away. They're going to be just as, um, just as salient or important in 2022 as they were in 2021, maybe even more so because the economy continues to do well. Um, and supply chain issues, which we'll talk about shortly, if those get better, then it just exacerbates the opportunity uh, or the need for employers to um, to have uh, the right people sitting in chairs, doing jobs, helping um, you know helping take advantage of the opportunity they have to grow their businesses. So that's going to be one that I think a you know, huge story from 2021 and will continue to be so into 2022. Um, the second big story, again, kind of downstream from the the pandemic and the effort to to sort of fight it, are these you know what are you know supply chain issues and 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 more specifically for technology, uh, microchip uh, supply chain issues. And you might think, well, I mean, 
if you're like me, supply chain issues have become sort of a meme. Um, you know, there was the, uh, you know, there's been the classic sort of, um, I'll call them, I don't know what you'd call them, but supply chain, uh, you know, non-issues, right? I don't know about you, but we all heard going into, into Halloween and Thanksgiving, we were going to have a pumpkin shortage, um, which sounds ridiculous when I say it out loud now, because because it sort of is. Well, I don't know about you, but it didn't seem like we had any problems getting pumpkins. And the same was true for Thanksgiving around turkeys. Um, there have been other sort of, uh, you know, supplies like this that have, you know, that we heard were going to be, um, that we were going to have issues because of supply chain uh, problems that didn't didn't turn out to be so. I think sometimes we've translated that to mean, ah, well, this is all BS or it's, there's not really supply chain issues. And that's just not true. Uh, there are significant supply chain issues in lots of areas of the, uh, of the economy just cause they had a, you know, somebody predicted wrong with a couple or, or a number of them doesn't mean that there aren't issues. Um, and again, as it relates to technology, particular problem, um, is the shortage of microchips and, there are a number of different um, reasons and causes for that. Uh, again, the, the the COVID the COVID pandemic and then the the government effort to to deal with that has certainly exacerbated it. But there are trends in the in the chip industry that have been building for years that have led us to this point that have made um, made it where it, it was vulnerable, if you will, to uh, to disruption. Um, if some circumstances, you know, maybe some unanticipated circumstances, but circumstances nevertheless were to arise. Um, the, the biggest problem is there aren't very many manufacturers of microchips. Um, if uh, again, and I'll mention this a couple of times throughout the, uh, throughout the podcast, but I want to make sure, you know, um, our fantastic producer, Emily Starnes, will um, put a list of articles um, that are references for the topics that we're covering uh, in this podcast. So if you want to go read about any of this stuff, feel free to do so. Um, I'm guessing that you guys are probably already aware of this and have read uh, read articles about it. But if not, the, the supply chain issues around microchips is actually pretty interesting. Um, it's incredibly expensive to make, uh, to make microchips. The facilities required are huge capital investment. Um, they also have, uh, you know, weird sort of geopolitical strategic, um, um, salience to governments. And so there's a lot of, I mean, China is a huge, uh, China's involved in this, uh, Taiwan, um, has, they have one of the, I think they've got the largest, uh, I think it's the largest manufacturing company in the world, um, with the most advanced facilities, you know, Intel, uh, has kind of fallen behind, but is, is fighting to stay in the game. So there, there aren't very many manufacturers, of microchips. And, um, the reality is when those, when those manufacturers, uh, the way they do their business, um, decisions they make can have a huge impact on what, uh, what comes out the other side. And, you know, this is a business again, huge capital investment. So therefore getting return on those investments is difficult. Um, very highly refined supply chains, um, very little slack for a lot of reasons. Um, very, you know, focused on lean manufacturing, and then, uh, you know, really spent have spent years um, rationalizing their supply chains to the point where they were incredibly, incredibly efficient. Now, nothing against efficiency. Efficiency is a good thing, but remember, efficiency. Um, it, there's a trade-off. The the more efficient you are and the leaner you are, uh, the less slack you have in your system. 
the more likely it is for a potential disruption to impact your ability to deliver. That's the nature of any supply chain or any or any manufacturing operation like this. If you don't have a bunch of spare parts sitting around, well, that's good for your balance sheet and your in your financial your financial statements. But if you can't get if you can't get supplies in to make what you need to make uh, because of a disruption in your supply chain, then you're in trouble if you don't have those uh, those spare parts. So, very simple kind of you know, manufacturing 101, I'm not a genius about it, but I think you get the point, right? Where we then had a disruption um, related to um, the ability to get parts for some of these guys. Um, they also, I mean, the, you know, you've probably seen pictures of these uh, container ships off the coast of uh, of California that can't get into port because there were, there, were, there were enough workers to unload, things like that. Um, and so if you don't have a lot of extra excess supply to get, if Intel can't get parts in, or if Taiwan's manufacturer can't get a finished product to market, then all kinds of industries are, are impacted because literally, I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say there are microchips in almost everything now, particularly things like automobiles, right? Uh, you know, technology components, you know, servers, routers, switches, all of the gear that drives what happens in in technology right in in information technology and it uh, and so our industry you know in the managed services provider business of helping folks manage networks and get networks up and running or wireless systems or even you know could be uh, you know more consumer-based electronics like laptops and things like that all that's been impacted right and and you know when you saw supplies of of new automobiles um you know coming where there was just a lack of supply it was really interesting to see if you if anybody tried to buy a car this past six eight months um it was a pretty weird situation right where used car prices in many cases were um more expensive quote unquote than a new car because you couldn't get a new car uh, and so the demand was driving up the you know the, the the there was too much demand chasing too little supply in the used car market and so prices actually it's almost like an inverted yield curve um, in in lending you know where it's, it doesn't make any sense why someone would you know pay more to to lend you money for a longer term than short right I mean you would you, that doesn't make any sense in the sort of the normal thinking around risk and return just like why would you pay more for a used car than you would for a new car. Well, the reason is because you can't get a new car in this case, so you'll pay what you'll pay what the market can bear. So, all that being said, the, the the microchip issues were really part and parcel of broader supply chain issues, but had real impact on uh, on IT. Um, you know, the inability to to switch out systems for uh, you know manufacturers like Cisco um, and folks like that. Uh, you know, Fortinet have been impacted by the inability to get chips. To deliver, uh, to deliver the gear necessary to keep the internet and to keep uh, WANs and LANs up and running uh, has been a real challenge. Um, and again, unlike the labor supply uh, issue, which you know, there's no doubt that's going to continue into 2022 and per, it looks like beyond. Um, the supply chain issues, I think most folks, and I, I tend to be on the side of this, most folks think that's going to get better, and it already is getting better, and it's going to continue to get better as we move into 2022. So I'm hoping that if for some reason you guys have to listen to me talk about this again next year, this won't be one of the big trends of 2022 that we will, that supply and demand and the supply chain aspects will sort of rebalance. Um, and, you know, there's some expectations that uh, supply chains won't be run as tight as they used to be. Uh, I've heard that. I honestly don't know that I believe that. I think that um, 
there's a lot of there's there's a lot of financial pressure to keep supply chains tight and efficient. Um, and, and so, you know, that pressure is the pressure of day to day, month to month and goes on and on. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared for a big issue to happen, but I don't know that that's, um, I don't know that that's big. I, I don't know that the concern about a, a, a disruptive event is enough to prevent companies or, or make, make companies leave money on the table, if you will, from having slack in their supply chains. We'll see, but I, I just don't, I just don't see that happening. Um, Two other issues that, uh, you know, one's a, one was sort of a story and another is a story slash trend. So I'll start with the, the story slash trend because I think it's um, it's a little bit a little bit off the beaten path. You may not have heard much about it, but I think it's kind of an interesting one, particularly as it relates to IT. And that's the uh, the movement towards what's called the right to repair. Um, it sounds kind of obvious. If you buy a piece of equipment, you should have the right to be able to fix it if you can. Um, but as you know, uh, if you've uh, ever purchased an iPhone or um, you know, another, other, another piece of equipment like that, you might think you have the right to repair, but in many ways you don't, right? You've, you're, you are oftentimes signing uh, an agreement to use, uh, to use software that if you, um, if you crack open the device, you, you void, uh, you void your right, uh, to, to the, to the license of the software. It doesn't mean you can't use it, but it means it's basically at that point, um, it, you, you can't get any help. You can't get any support if you have a if you have a software issue, which has nothing to do with what you did if you opened that device. Um, you can't get any help. You voided it um, by making that move. Um, there's been a lot of pushback on that. A lot of people are frustrated with that. Um, there's been a big movement in that direction across all sectors, not just technology. Um, you know, there's the old joke: "I'm 51 years old," um, which is very old now. Um, but I remember people used to work on their cars and people used to repair things. Um, there used to be repair shops and, and that has almost, it's not completely gone away, but has, has certainly changed dramatically in my lifetime. Um, and I think, you know, the right to repair is not necessarily a move back to that part of the reason there was so much stuff that had to be repaired 30 years ago or 40 years ago is because it wasn't as good. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a good reason why, I mean, if you look at the uh, simple example, if you look at how much longer cars last now than they used to, um, that's not because, um, somehow we've gotten better at fixing them. It's because the initial manufacturing is better. Uh, and they, the, those parts and those components, they last longer. That's not true for everything, but it's true for most things. Um, there's also the, uh, you know, the other aspect of sort of the, um, you know, what planned obsolescence or, uh, you know, the disposable economy that some people call it, where, you know, you buy an HDTV and it only costs $225 and you use it for four, three or four years and it breaks and you don't even try to fix it. You're like, it would cost more to fix it than it is to replace it. Right. And so those, those trends are working together really, I'll say conspiring against the right to repair. That sounds like it's a conspiracy. It's not, it's just the trends themselves have made it, um, really less, less necessary or important to repair things. At the same time, um, there have been clear decisions made primarily by technology companies to limit the ability to repair devices. Um, and that has been um, frustrating again for folks and, you know, been a lot of pressure put on, uh, on technology companies. And, and of course, in some places there's been legislation, uh, particularly in places like France, um, France is always quick to, to, to regulate. It's kind of their, their instinct. Um, they're more comfortable with government power, I think, than, than most in, in the U.S. are. But nevertheless, they've, they've forced, uh, they've sort of trying to force the issue of 
giving in uh, giving technology companies uh, this sort of score that um, that speaks to how um, how strongly their products sort of adhere to a right to repair model, uh, which is kind of an interesting idea. Um, but Apple has recently made big changes um, in this direction to allow um, allow really shops and individuals to um, to repair devices without uh, and to get spare parts and things like that without perhaps avoiding uh, the licensing. You know, sort of the idea of the jail a jailbreak jail, a phone that's been jailbroken. Um, you know, you've got. Um, you know, you've got iPhone repair shops, but they're mostly about switching out screens and things like that. That's difficult. They're difficult devices to fix, um, and they're expensive devices. So that's going to be an interesting. That that to me was a it was a interesting trend in 2021 that will certainly continue forward. It's one I'm going to watch. I think it's a. It'll be interesting to see how that bleeds over into you know maybe the more enterprise level IT stuff. Does that? What does that look like for? Um, you know, for the devices that uh, and the gear that's installed in a data center or in a in a hybrid environment, um, or the you know the machines themselves that sit on the desktops um, of uh, of employees, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see if if that gets picked up in any way um, in the enterprise sort of IT world, and we start to see more movement um, around repair because there's a refurb market and there's things like you know there's there's service contracts. So, so I'm not implying that it's, that it's apples to apples. It's not, it's different, but some of that is bled over some of that, um, some of that disposable economy and some of that, um, you know, better, better manufacturing has, has impacted the enterprise side as well. So it'll be interesting to see if this has an impact on, uh, on, um, the world in which, uh, you know, sort of general business it exists. So we, we shall see. Um, the last one, not really a trend. It's more of a story, um, uh, recurring. I, I guess a, a a variation on a theme. Uh, our last episode, uh, I had the pleasure to interview um, uh, Andrew Blum about his book Tubes, and so we were talking about really the guts of the internet, um, the the underlying tubes themselves that carry that that hold the fiber optic cables that send uh, the data across. But then those tape those tubes have to terminate somewhere, and those are in large data centers. Um, points of presence all over the world, really. Uh, and they're centralized for obvious reasons. Um, and the gear that's in those um, that's in those facilities is, you know, top notch uh, and has really, you know, the capacity has expanded in such a way that, you know, we really don't talk much about um, limitations on internet speeds anymore or limitations on the ability to get data. Data's cheap, right? Um, that's part of why, why data analytics uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, that's the, that's the raw material that's necessary for those kinds of things to, to be able to exist is cheap data, uh, fast, fast internet speeds, those kinds of things. Those are all there. Um, at the same time, um, we had three, really three or four major outages in 21, in 2021 that reinforced or drove home the message that while we call the internet you know, we think of the internet as this thing and it's sort of in the air. Uh, and we even use the expression, the cloud. Um, it's actually not a cloud or a thing. It's a set of connected devices, right? There's a, there's a, there's a very real stark physicality, uh, associated with the internet. Um, and it's also very, very centralized, right. And very aggregated in terms of meaning, there aren't that many locations that really have a huge impact on the ability of the internet to deliver 
data and services to its users. Uh, and we saw that in 2021. I mean, if you go back, we can kind of go chronologically. Starting in January, Verizon had a big outage um, that really affected the East Coast. Um, and it turned out they thought it was a fiber. They thought it was a cut, you know, fiber cut, you know, physical cut in one of their lines. It turns out it wasn't. It was human error. Um, something had happened in a setting change. You know, going forward, Fastly, um, which is a content delivery network, had a big outage in the summer um, that affected a bunch of big players. I mean, almost not all the big players, but a lot of the big players, New York Times, other people like that. Um, and Fastly is an interesting one because that's an example of a, a provider to providers, right? You, you maybe have never even heard of Fastly. Um, all a content de de delivery network does is help big websites deliver their, uh, deliver their content to end users faster and more effectively. And it also helps them avoid DDoS attacks and things like that based on the sort of the nature of the way it works. But anytime you've got, so back to sort of aggregations of, um, you know, centralizing or aggregational components of internet delivery, Fastly is a great example of that because if they have a problem, it's going to affect their, a broad, you know, a widespread problem. It's going to affect the big guys. They are not truly independent of one another. You might not think, the New York Times and, you know, for example, the New York Times and maybe Amazon um, have anything to do with each other. You might think the Washington Post and Amazon do because Jeff Bezos, you know, has an impact, has, a, has an ownership in both. But in this case, if Fastly is providing CDN services for both, then if there's an outage at Fastly, it will affect both of them, even though they are, you know, at least on its face, completely independent of one another. So that's, that's an interesting sort of example of where centralization and aggregation of, for, for, for good reasons, right, where you've got, um, uh, th there are good economic reasons and, and frankly, um, physical reasons for having, uh, you know, data, only having, you know, not having data centers everywhere. It's not very, it, it doesn't make much sense economically. And it also can actually make uh, latency issues across a network worse if you've got too many nodes. Um, but it also creates a, a quick, creates risk in the system um, if there is a, a disruption, and that the, the Fastly outage was a clear example of that. The last one, probably the most well known, was the Facebook outage in October, and it's different, obviously different than the Fastly uh, Fastly one because it only affected, you know, Facebook and its properties, Facebook and Instagram primarily. But it's huge. Facebook is so huge. This is an 800 pound gorilla on the internet as it relates to usage. And so it was, and it was long. It was like six or seven hours. I mean, they had a, it was a long outage. Um, so it, it was very high profile. Lots of people knew about it. We talked about it at length back in, uh, on an episode earlier, I think in November. Um, and again, it was a human error. Uh, it wasn't a physical error. It wasn't a hack. I mean, it, one, one thing that's common across all these is none of these were hacks. None of these were malicious actors. These were all mostly um, human error uh, as it related to the software that that manages the internet capabilities of these services. Uh, and the, the Facebook meta outage was no different. So uh, all of this points to, you know, these sort of, if you think about the idea of the internet um, and its its initial conception and its promise of sort of the vision of the internet was this decentralized system of of content delivery um, that, you know, would be very resilient because of that, because it was so decentralized, right? This sort of communications system, I mean, initially built to, if there was a catastrophic nuclear war, would still be able to deliver uh, communications, um, you know, because it wasn't centralized. 
We are far, far from that now. And there are some aspects of that decentralization that are still there, but there's also some very real forces that have led to centralization that make it maybe more brittle um, and a little more vulnerable than we, uh, than we ever really thought it would be. So with that, um, I don't, there didn't seem to be much in there that was uh, uh, positive or optimistic in its outlook. I, I guess the right to repair, that's a, that's positive in, out, in its outlook. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll finish with that one. Um, at least in our mind, as we look forward towards 2022, because it's got to be sunny, sunny skies ahead, right? Right. Um, so what, when we think about 2022, again, I, I joked at the beginning that, you know, I'm not going to, this is not really prognostication. I'm not trying to predict what's going to happen. I'm really looking at the things that to me seem fairly obvious uh, trends that may accelerate um, as we go into 2022, um, as opposed to, as I said, the supply chain issue which I don't think, I actually think we're going to probably hear less about that um, as we get further into 2022. Contrast that with uh, the idea of hybrid work, um, which obviously took on a life of its own in 2020 and 2021. And it doesn't look like there's any, there's no signs of the stopping um, as it relates to, you know, uh, white collar work or work that doesn't require, that doesn't 100% 100% require face-to-face delivery. Usually that means um, the delivery of a good or a service that can't be done, um, that can't be done remotely. To give a simple example, um, you know, financial advisors five years ago, 10 years ago, were pretty much 100% face-to-face. You know, you scheduled a meeting with your financial advisor. You know, you might talk to them on the phone, but you went to the office to talk to them, right? That was the way they built a relationship. That's the way they managed the relationship. That is not the same anymore, right? And there's no reason with the technology that we have, there's no reason that it needs to stay uh, stay the same. Um, but interesting when we use the expression hybrid because hybrid implies a little bit of both, right? You're going to go to the office some and you're going to work from home or remotely some. Um, I think this is a super interesting trend. Um, we're going to have... Um, I'm going to try to have a couple of episodes uh, this year, at least a couple, maybe more, talking about different dimensions of this uh, of this trend. Because, I mean, let's face it, we don't really know as businesses how to do this. I think in the IT world, we're probably ahead of the game compared to others. Um, there's been remote remote delivery of services for a long time. Um, developers, uh, you know, sometimes sit together, sometimes are around the world talking to each other. Uh, so, so the idea of of remote work in, in IT isn't new. I mean, there are, there are pure remote only uh, organizations out there that only get together a few times a year. <clears throat> you know, Basecamp is probably um, Jason Fried and um, um, DHH is, they're probably the, the, the poster child for that, uh, you know, sort of getting rid of the office and only having people get together once or twice a year and everybody being purely remote. So not a new idea in technology. But certainly new um, in lots of other industries, and this has affected. This has been across the board. I mean, gosh, think about the idea that the idea of, of medicine being delivered, you know, through telemedicine. That was we've been talking about it for a long time, but it ha- hadn't really happened. And then you know the pandemic hits, and boom, um, it's a real thing now, and it, and we're not going back. Um, I don't know about you, but anybody who's had a telemedicine um, appointment during during the pandemic. If you're like me, you were super. <laughs> you were super glad to have it. It made it really easy, and you also thought, I don't know why I can't just do this most of the time because this is a hell of a lot easier um, for both of us, right? To be able to get to be able to to do 
medicine this way. Now, obviously, it doesn't work for everything, but it works for a lot of things, right? And I think that's true. That's a that's a theme that applies across lots and lots of industries. Financial advisors are a good example. Lots of financial advisors now are moving to a, a sort of a, an inverse model where they do most of the work on video chat and phone and email, and then they get together in person for some relationship building and maybe some maybe some paperwork execution review if necessary, but you can do all that stuff remotely as well. So that's an industry that it looks as flipping completely in the other direction where it's going to be mostly online with some face-to-face, whereas literally I would imagine three years ago it was the opposite. And so again, that's going to happen over and over and over again. So I think us trying to figure out how to do this well, how do we engage employees, um, how do we keep them? How do we keep them excited about their work? How do we know if things are going well for them? I mean, there's the sort of the Big Brother episode. Are they doing what they're supposed to do? I think we'll figure that out. I'm not super. I'm not nearly as concerned about that as we as I am about how do we build an engaging workplace if we don't all come to the same place at least regularly. And I think that's where hybrid gets involved. People want you know coming once or twice a week. Maybe is maybe what it's going to end up. Um, migrating towards, but with geographic dispersal as people move um, and mobility you know, expands, that may get harder to do. It may be once a quarter or twice a year. Um, and so those are, those are going to be key cultural development uh, events, something that which I don't know that most of us as business owners have thought that much about. So that's going to be a trend that's going to be really interesting to watch as we go um, into 2022. Uh, the second trend that I've, that I've think is going to carry on again it's not a new trend but it's going to accelerate in 2022 is this idea of multi-channel delivery of services again with the pandemic we've seen it um you know in its most in its you know most obvious forms at places like you know the retailers uh restaurants you know those places that began you know used to be target you could you could order online or you could go to the store um and there was some you know cross-channel integration even at a big place like that but like they went to a whole new level, right? Where you could do, you can now pick up things. Um, they, you can get delivery. Really, you can, you know, it's you. You can have it your way now um, at most retailers and restaurants too. Even even small guys have gotten into the game with delivery, pickup, um, and and that's just kind of become a norm in in a lot of industries. And I think with the web uh, and video conferencing being sort of the um, the normalized technology that's now been embedded in most companies, um, even in you know in services B two B and B two C services or B two B businesses, things like IT or other kinds of B two B services, the introduction and the normalization of web and video conferencing is going to change uh, you know customer interaction, and it's certainly changing all of these trends we're talking about are certainly changing their expectations of what their, of what their business partners and suppliers and vendors will do. Um, You know, one of the big, the big challenges I think for all of us who deliver services to other businesses is consumers are getting used to being able to see, and I use the word see in quotes, see the progression of, of services throughout a life cycle of, of its, uh, creation and delivery. I mean, if you think about it, Amazon in, in conjunction with UPS, if you order something, you know from the time you order it to when it goes to the distribution center, to when it gets shipped, to when it arrives at your house, right? You can, and you can watch all that, not in real time, but pretty close, right? There's very little analog of that in the B2B world where you can watch 
or, or, or a, a buyer can can know what's going on with the delivery of a service, right? You can have if you're doing a, a an IT project, well, you can have project updates and you can share information, but it's not that clear, right? It's not that transparent, and I feel like there's going to be a lot of pressure, uh, a lot of pressure on um, on us all to uh, to get to get better at that and to leverage technology to do that. Um, which isn't easy. I um, mean, if you think about Amazon, this is <laughs> their R and D budget is you know bigger than most you know bigger than the GDP of lots of countries. So this is not a comp- This is they, they are not constrained by their ability to deliver technology to help them do that. The average business can't do that. So it, it creates this opportunity, I think, for third party services to to provide that kind of that that kind of technology, and it, it, I think it. It pushes us creatively, you know, creatively to figure out how to do it, even if it's not through, you know, 100% software solution. So more communication, more sharing uh, of information around where things are, kind of work in progress, uh, transparency. I think there's gonna be a lot of pressure for that that comes from, uh, in addition to providing or or, or re- requiring us to deliver, uh, provide, use multiple channels to deliver our goods or services. Right? I mean used to just be, well, you're going to be online or you're going to be face to, you know, retail, you know, physical location. And then we had, you know, cross channel across those two, but now it's going even further around the service and other aspects really across the board. So I think that's a, that's a trend that's going to be interesting to watch as we go forward into 2022. Uh, so the la- I saved the, uh, I won't say I saved the best for last, but I saved the most, um, I, I guess furthest out on the frontier um, trend that developed, you know, it, it's not just in 2021, but it you could see it in 2020 and 2021. It continues to build and build. And that's this idea of Web3 and blockchain. Um, and I want to separate just, you know, the sort of this is this has nothing to do really with sort of Bitcoin, um, the, the cryptocurrency side in terms of of asset values and investment slash speculation around uh, around crypto right that's its own thing it has it has something to do with this for sure because it's creating a financial base upon which uh blockchain technologies and some of the stuff that's going on around web3 um can function because you can't separate blockchain and crypto crypto is sort of the funding mechanism for it the va- the valuation of those cryptocurrencies is another whole thing and i i won't i, I won't i won't pretend to know i, I can can explain why that's happening or that I would even, I'm actually not even that interested in it. So um, it's it's sort of a separate, separate um, concept altogether. But I do think, you know, I'll make a, I'll make an obvious statement that maybe is even stupid, but nevertheless, it needs to be said. I don't really have any idea how blockchain and web three are, is going to, how those, those innovations are going to impact business in general or even it specifically. But I, I 100% believe that they will. Just because I don't know how doesn't mean I don't believe that they will. Um, and I think most people, again, that's not a, I'm not really going out on a limb by saying that. Most people think that's the case. There's a variety of applications of blockchain that seem like they will have real impacts on the delivery of technology services, just like the delivery of general business services as a whole. Um, having said that, you know, it's an interesting world. There's, there's some, you know, very strong advocates of, of this who think who, you know, they're saying it's going to change the world. Uh, I'll call them proponents. Some would, you know, some might call them zealots. Um, Others are very skeptical of, of, of what's going on with these trends. And so 
Um, again, part of what Emily will do, we'll, we'll share some articles uh, about Web3 that present a couple different views of this, sort of the, you know, maybe the more um, optimistic and then maybe someone who's a little more skeptical. Um, although the skeptical ones are, I, I, I call them fairly even-handed. They're not, they're generally <clears throat> positive or bullish on the underlying technologies. They may not be as bullish around near-term applications. So just put a pin in that as you think about if this is something you want to learn more about. But, you know, one of the, you know, proponents talk a lot about, hey, look, this is, uh, you know, this is, um, this is the new internet, right? This is, this is, this is what the internet was supposed to be, right? And the internet's been corrupted, um, you know, by, ag you know, by, you know, consolidation and aggregation of large providers and really isn't what it was supposed to be, this sort of decentralized system for anybody to create content and deliver services and, 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 and really mitigate against <clears throat> centralized control. And, and the story really hasn't played out that way. And so, a lot of the really strong advocates for Web three are saying this is we're, we're gonna we're, this is a do over. This is gonna be the the true decentralized internet. Um, but what's interesting about that is there are already signs of centralization um, in various aspects of the ecosystem, particularly around things like wallets, uh, marketplaces, and even at the API level for APIs that that drive um, some of the some of the connections between blockchains and the and the cryptocurrencies um, that are that are there. Uh, so I don't know where that's going again, uh, depending on who you read, others think it may be a, it, it won't look like the internet, but it might look kind of like the internet and others who feel like it's going to be something very different. Um, we'll, we'll have to see, but I think you're going to hear more about this. And obviously with the, the huge run up in asset prices around Bitcoin and, and the various cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, Doge, etc., Um, it sucks a lot of air out of the room for that. Uh, and, and I think that's, it's understandable, but it's unfortunate because I, I don't think that's that I don't think that's the interesting part of the story long term. So, you know, this is advice for you know you're, you're, you can, you can take this advice for what it for what it's what it's worth, uh, which is about maybe worth worth what you're paying for it, which is nothing. But if you spend time reading about this, try to spend some time focusing less on the sort of the asset price side of of crypto and more on the fundamental. Uh, what's happening at the infrastructure level, because I think it's a whole lot more interesting. And I think for those of us in either technology or in business impacted by technology, that's where we're going to, we should be paying attention to see what might happen that could affect us both positively and negatively as it relates to our businesses. So, um, all right, that's all I've got for you guys today. Um, if you stayed with me this far, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, I will say that doing a solo podcast is a daunting task. Uh, so my hat is off to those out there who do it uh, and have done it and do it regularly. Um, but I don't know that I'll do this again. We'll see. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully you have found it a, a good use of your time. Um, regardless, I wish all of you the best uh, in health and happiness for 2022 and good luck. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks and is produced by Talia Domenico and Emily Starnes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, we'd be most grateful if you would share it with others who you think might be interested in hearing a somewhat irreverent take on the arcane world of IT. If you aren't enjoying it, well, why are you listening? You can find links to this podcast on our website at plow.net, on our YouTube and Instagram feeds, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, LinkedIn, and probably a bunch of other places too. Or as my kids like to say, just Google that shit. You'll find it for sure. Take care and have a great day.